Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Man, today is a fun episode. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mark McCluskey, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's worked with bands like Weezer, Motion City Soundtrack, Bad Religion, Ludo, Punchline, and a whole bunch of other great bands. He's really well known for the pop punk genre and mixing and producing and engineering it, but his skills go much further than that, to the point where he's also doing a lot of great composing, and he even got nominated for an Oscar award this year, which I think that makes him the first engineer on this show to ever have been nominated for an Oscar. So that's awesome, and I wish him the best of luck with that. Mark also recently launched a brand new sample drum company called Smack Drum Samples. And I've had a chance to try out a bunch of these samples, and they're phenomenal. They sound great. They work great for anything like pop music, rock music, punk music. They're great for that kind of stuff. Um, one of my favorite features of the sample pack is he's got these drums that are called the smack drums. And basically they're just like heavily parallel processed drums. And no matter what mix I'm working on, I find that I can blend them into my drum tracks and get like this perfect amount of crunch and smack to them, pardon the pun. But, uh, but they work so, so well. And I'm really excited for you to check them out too. As a special gift for Master Mix subscribers, Mark has decided to make a free sample pack available for download. And in the sample pack, you're going to get a bunch of his drums and they sound so awesome. And I really would love for you to download them and try them all out. So to get your free sample pack, visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash smack drum samples. And all you got to do is just sign up on the page there and you'll immediately get the file sent to you. Try them out. They're awesome. I think you're going to love them. So without further ado, let's go into the interview with Mark. And in this chat, we talk about a lot of great stuff, a lot about drum processing, recording, mixing, all that kind of good stuff. But let's not waste any more time. Let's go right into it. I know you're going to love it. So Mark, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you so much. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of your, of your background, your story, your journey, how you got into engineering? Absolutely. So I think it's probably pretty typical to most people's stories is uh, I was a kid. I uh, liked music a whole lot. I started off on the clarinet and uh, kind of worked my way through some of the other woodwinds with saxophones. And then uh, I got into jazz band and uh, I started to play drums. And from there, uh, you know, I discovered Nirvana through my best friend, Tom Bruno. Uh, and we started to play together and then we stopped playing together, <laughs> me and Tom, and I started uh, playing with some other guys and I started writing my own songs. And then I kind of came up with, uh, well, I'd like to hear these songs, so I'm going to start to record them. So my mom had this uh, old Sony boombox and I would move it around the room and try to find like the best spot to put it to see if I could get like a better balance of the band. And then eventually that turned into the band getting a PA and having a few microphones, like some SM58s or something. I don't even think we had those. I think they were Radio Shack. And uh, I would hang those around the room and put them in front of the guitars or drums. And then I would go to the PA and mix the levels on the PA and then take the outputs of the PA to the inputs of the Sony and record that for like, you know, 30 seconds and then go back and adjust and then do that until I got like the sound right, because it had to be mixed when it was done. So I did that, and then eventually I got a four track, and that's when I was like, holy shit, there are four tracks? <laughs> oh my God, do you know what I could do with four tracks? So yeah, and then I started doing things like ping-ponging, you know, where you record on four tracks, bounce it down to the, uh, a tape, and then you have two tracks, and then you have now two tracks open, and then just keep going down and mixing and mixing and mixing. And then uh, eventually I, uh, I got Pro Tools and uh, I would all, we would go to studios, it's funny. We'd go to studios and I remember just telling the engineers like, no, that's not right, like this doesn't sound right. This is not the way it sounds in my head. Like move out of the way, let me turn those knobs. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew in my head I, I could hear it and he was missing it. So uh, I started doing that, got Pro Tools, 
And then uh, I played in a band called Nuclear Saturday for a while. And we got signed to Vagrant for like a super hot minute and then dropped from Vagrant almost as fast as we got signed. Uh, and th that whole time, I was making friends with a lot of bands in the region. And I was recording all of Nuclear Saturday stuff. And it sounded the best out of all of that, uh, you know, that, that scene. So bands started coming to me and asking me if I could record them. And I was like, yeah, I guess. And then, uh, you know, me being a slow guy, one day I was like, you know what? I could probably charge for this. <laughs> so <laughs> then I started, uh, you know, saying, hey, you, you guys want to give me like 300 bucks for five songs? And eventually I started doing enough of those where I quit uh, my job at Starbucks. It was the last real job I had. Um, and then uh, I just started doing it. And then those bands, luckily, uh, I've been blessed enough where I got to work with so many talented artists, they made me sound good. And then those bands started getting signed. And then those labels started going, well, who's the guy making this stuff? And then they started reaching out to me to work with their art. So it was really organic. It wasn't like some master plan. I wasn't sitting there thinking like, I'm going to be a record producer. I was just a guy that really liked making music. And I still am very much like that. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I had a, a similar approach where, yeah, going in the studio and going through that experience where like the engineers just not getting it right. And it's like, no. I know I can yeah. do better than this. Like, yeah, I remember that. That's how I discovered double tracking guitars. Like, I remember listening to a mix someone yeah. was doing, and I was like, "Man, these guitars sound super thin. Like, something's wrong, man. Like, what are, what are we gonna do to like make these sound bigger?" And, <laughs> and I was like, "Let's just try recording it again. Let's see if that does anything." And then, sure enough, it was like, "Whoa, that's that's the sound. Like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing this." Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's funny, and and you know, I'm gonna be forty this year. So back then, the you know, you couldn't find information on learning on how to record. Right. Because the Internet was like the weather in porn. So there's nothing else there to get information. So like you just said, right, you had to figure it out. You you sat there and you go, well, this doesn't sound right. So I'm going to solve that problem in the way that I can you know, rationalize it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to for young people. Right. Like you can watch tutorials all day and and see how other people do things, which is great because you get like a little. Uh, you know, looking through the keyhole into somebody else's process and you can take from that. But I encourage everyone to fail. Like you, you learn from that. If, if somebody says, don't touch the stove, right? It's hot. And you go, I don't know, man, I'm going to touch the stove. You touch the stove, <laughs> you burn your hand, right? You know, now you know, it's not a question of like, well, why? Why don't I touch the stove? Now you know why you don't touch the stove because it's hot, you burn, you fail. Yeah. And that's how you learn. And, you know, every day I, I try to do something I'm not comfortable doing uh, <laughs> in music and in life. <laughs> and uh, I learn from that. Right. Sometimes it's a success. And then I have to figure out why it was a success. And sometimes more times than not, it's a failure. But now I know if I go down that road again, I kind of know what that result will be. Yeah, for sure. And you talked about how you started off with the boombox and then you went to the four track and you had this kind of revelation of like, oh man, there's four tracks. When you went to Pro Tools and all of a sudden you had this infinite number of tracks, did your previous work kind of influence how you approached Pro Tools? Like, were you all of a sudden like committing to things or were you just like, oh, I got all these tracks. I can do all the things in the world with it. Like, I'm just going to record everything. Right. So, so right. So I probably skipped over a little bit of things. So I, uh, four tracks and then ADATs okay. uh, in studios. So then it was 16, right? So two, you know, two yeah. ADAT machines. But those things sounded like shit. They were like, <laughs> <laughs> like you'd go in the room and you're like, you'd hear it through the board and you're like, yeah, that's what it sounds like. And then you'd hear it back off the ADAT and you're like, that's not what it sounds like. But anyways, and then, uh, so the Pro Tools, right? Infinite number of tracks. That's what everybody's used to these days. Pro Tools, when I bought it, it was 24. I bought a Digi 001. Actually, my, my dad helped me buy a Digi 001 in a computer. Um, so we only had 24 tracks, and, you know, you put a couple EQs and more than one reverb, and that thing's going to crash every time you hit play. So, again, you get back to that, like, well, I got to get the sound right at the source because I don't have the luxury of adding all this crap on later to make it sound good. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that revelation was cool because it, it gave me the uh, – the opportunity to experiment more and sort of 
you know, anytime you get something new, you do something way too much, right? You put it to the extreme and then you're, you, you're like, this is awesome. And then a few <laughs> months later, you go back and listen and you're like, what the hell was I thinking, right? So, right, you get, you get four tracks, you're, you're concentrating on writing great songs because the song is the star, uh, like the Beatles or, you know, Green Day. And uh, then you get 16 tracks and you're like, okay, well now I can kind of actually produce, right? I can kind of double guitars or add an extra guitar or something like that. Uh, you get 24 tracks, that's where you're like, okay, well now I can really get a lot of mics on the drums. I can get the guitars I want. You can get pretty much a really great sound. Uh, and then you go overboard and then you have to learn, right, how to edit. Like that's, that's another big thing about being a, a mixer or even producer or songwriter, right? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Good point. There is brilliance in silence. Sometimes the best moments are when nothing is happening and you have to learn how to recognize those and find those moments. For sure. I remember even when I was, I'm a drummer and I remember learning drums and, uh, you know, I, I, when you're when you're young and you're learning an instrument, you're naive and you think, well, like to be the best at this, I need to like just show off and like wank and play, yeah. like overplay. Sure. And uh, and I remember very early on trying to like learn some records, and and I remember my drum teacher giving me the Weezer Blue album, and he was just like, just learn oh, yeah. this, learn this album. And yeah. I was like, what do you mean? Like, how am I gonna learn all this stuff? He's so like, just simple. listen to how simple yeah. it is, and. That yeah. was like a revelation for me because I was like, whoa, like there's people making these hit records doing very simple drumming and like it, and everything is very simple there, you know, like, so yeah. I think that's really important. And and even like from my own experience working with other engineers and producers, like I've had other people say, OK, tone it down. And then when you try it, you're like, oh, yeah, this like the song just yeah. takes shape a lot better, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it definitely helps. I, I was going to ask, like, you, you, you've played a variety of instruments. Uh, how do you think your impact or how do you think your ability to play instruments has influenced the work that you do? Is it that kind of same idea that we were just talking about there? Yeah, sort of. So I am, again, like I am a jack of all trades, but I suck at everything, right? <laughs> like I can do enough to get by. I'm not a great guitar player, but I can play power chords real good. You know, I'm not a great pianist, but I can form chords and play simple rhythms. I'm not a great drummer, but I can lay down a, a basic beat. So when I think, and I studied music, like very in depth. Um, so when I think about music and mixes and songs, I, I'm actually looking at my keyboard sitting in front of me right now. And that's exactly how I picture it, right? So you have your low, 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 low notes. Maybe that's your kick drum or maybe that's your bass, however you want to design your note or your uh, your mix or, or arrangement of your song, right? Next, you got some baritone stuff, whatever you whatever you put in there, guitars, whatever, right? Then you got some tenor. So your melody is going to live around the tenor and alto range, right? And the lead stuff. And then you keep moving up the piano and you got, you know, cymbals and, and high percussion and everything. And I, I whenever I'm producing a band, I always say the same thing because I always find bands try to cramp so much shit in the same octave, right? Because they don't listen to each other or they write the music first and then they just start singing over it. Yeah. So you got like three melodies going on and you're like, okay, wait, what am I supposed to listen to here? Like buy a Green Day record, buy a Ramones record. Those are timeless sounds, right? And songs. And it's they're so simple. It's because they focused on just the right notes, not how many notes. And when I when I work with a band, I, I, I always give this, uh, it's going to be hard to describe it in a podcast, but I'll do the best I can. When you play piano, how, how often do you see a piano player playing on top of his hands? Yeah, it's true. Do you know what I mean? You never do. You never do. But it sounds full on a piano when you have space and a hole for the melody in the middle and you have something up high and something down low, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, I close my eyes and I visualize an arrangement so where my bass is, where my kick is, where my guitars are, where my percussion and my high elements and where my melodies are. And I try to make sure nobody is stepping on that. And you're going to get fewer things going on, which is easier to comprehend. And you're going to get a bigger, wider sound because everything has its own place. And when things have their own place, you can really, really have a huge impact with arrangement. If the band 
bass is playing high for the whole verse, right? Let's say everything's above the, uh, like an E, uh, uh, seven, what is that, seventh fret? I never know frets. Yeah, no notes. I'm a drummer. <laughs> yeah, so if you're playing, let's just say you're playing higher on the neck, right? Yeah. So everything's up there. And then the chorus, you drop into that low E. You didn't add an extra element, but you gave it so much more girth. And you got to remember, like, there's a thing called the uh, harmonic overtone series. Mm -hmm. And the lower you get, there's more over, you, you're able to hear the overtone. So when you hit a low E, you're hearing that E octave and then the, you know, the octave of that and all the, the overtones in it. So you're actually creating more harmonic content. And it, that's what it gets so full with less things happening. So I really start, really try to be clever with how I arrange music. And, you know, great, great examples are like Quincy Jones, right? He's like a jazz musician. So his arrangements of Michael Jackson songs mm -hmm. are super clever. And if you go and listen to it, there's the little elements that come in and out. There's not a lot going on, right? But it sounds huge. It's just because it's the right parts at the right time with the right notes. And everybody plays along. They're all, they're all friends. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's that's amazing advice. Like, I, I remember kind of first learning that concept as well, and it, it blew my mind. Like, once once I started implementing it, it was like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, like it, everything just makes way more sense this way. Like, it, yeah, you get way more clarity, and you're not fighting EQs trying to make things stand out. And like, that's when you get the yep. bud, right? If exactly. everything's right on top of each other. Boom! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need less EQ. You need less compression, which makes things sound more real. Which really, that's what a, what a great record is. Is a hyper reality at least today it's like mm -hmm. you want things to you don't want your brain to go like well that doesn't sound real you want that your brain to go wow that sounds so real it's more real than real and that's where you get a great sounding record for sure and you know the thing you mentioned about weezer is you know i, I grew up with that band i remember the first time i heard the blue album and uh it blew me away at the guitar tones they are so thick oh, and yeah. so big what else you need <laughs> you don't need anything else. yeah and i was lucky enough that uh i mixed two weezer records and uh rivers gave me michael and carly from the blue album uh to to mix and it was like mind-blowing because like my 16 year old self was like this is crazy like i'm working on a record that influenced me That's or amazing. not a record but working on a song yeah. that was recorded during the same time a record that heavily influenced me and i'm mixing it it was crazy so that's so I awesome. feel very fortunate. Yeah. I, I, yeah. But it's just like you said, it's super minimal. Everything's super basic and it's great. Yeah, for sure. Tell me a little bit about your studio setup these days. Like obviously now you're, you've moved on beyond the boom box and the four tracks and all that stuff. And you're yeah. in pro tools now. Uh, what kind of gear are you working with these days? Uh, so I used to have outboard gear, uh, probably just like everybody else that was like, you know, the Shadow Hills battery compressor or 33. I actually had the third 33609 ever made and I sold it to Jeff Giuliano. Wow. Uh, I still I still sort of regret that. But uh, <laughs> he's a great dude, though. Um, the uh, I sold everything and I just went to Apollo's. I just used two Apollo 8Ps or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't really feel like it goes back. Right. You get all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, I got all this stuff. And then you're like, wait. Does it make the song any better? You know, who cares? Look, like, I love this example. Uh, so one of my, my mentors is this dude named Matt Wallace, yep. who uh, produced, yeah, songs about Jane and, you know, Faith No More, like all these amazing records. And uh, yeah, Wallace has this uh, great, great thing about it doesn't matter about how it sounds, right? He, he uses, uh, uh, what's the name of that song? Alanis Morissette. Uh, you ought to know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can't remember the name of the song, but you ought to know. Uh, that song. Yeah, is that the name that, of it? That's Amazing. the name, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, man. The hook, hey, man, the, hook the, the hooks good, are man. usually the name of a song, right? <laughs> right, right. So uh, his thing is, you know, if, if you listen to that, that recording, you love it, right? Listen to it twice. Listen to it just like you listen to it, and then listen to it with engineer ears, and it sounds awful. It was recorded in like, I guess, like a basement with ADAP yeah. tapes and it was a demo, right? Mm -hmm. So it just shows you, does it really matter how great it sounds? No, nobody cares. Listen to a Beatles record. Like technically, the, to, today, to today's standards, they don't sound great. 
They don't. But they are amazing songs. And that's why they're still around. And that's why people like it. So, yeah, I think you focus on making great songs, not great recordings, because the recordings will just happen naturally. For sure. And I'm totally with you on that. Like, yeah, I'm not I wouldn't say that I'm a big Beatles fan, but I appreciate the songwriting element of it. And I think that, like, you know, when you listen back to those old recordings, you can you can really get a good sense of like proper arrangement. And and that's what made those songs so great. And I wonder now with kind of touching back on the topic of how with Pro Tools, you can go overboard and like just add millions of layers. Like, I feel like we are at a point where now the technology is kind of becoming the the thing that everybody talks about. And it's like, let's overdo oh, this yeah. and make it big. And I feel like shortly or soon, it's going to start to go back to that songwriting. People are going to slowly realize, okay, we're, we're overdoing yeah. this a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, the If you look at the cyclical nature of everything, and, and we'll use the 80s because that's kind of where we are at the end of the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened in the 80s? Digital stuff started coming out. So that influenced the way the production was because it's a new color. Like that color, whatever you want to call it, that color blue or red or, or yellow, right, is a new yellow we haven't seen. So I want to see it a lot. Okay. And then what happened was Nirvana or grunge or whatever the fuck you want to call it kicks in the door and goes, you know what? I am completely the opposite of this. I sound like I got, I played in a garage Mm -hmm. and we're going to get, we're going to get rid of this because all this stuff is so overdone and I'm sick of that yellow. Now I don't want to see this color red for a while. Mm -hmm. So that's going to slip underground and the, you know, that's what happens. The underground always creates the next wave. You know what I'm waiting for? This is a little off topic, but not really. It's fucking shoegazer. Like, where the hell is that? I'm waiting for the shoegazer wave. Like, it never kind of <laughs> really blew up. But anyways, yeah, that's, a side, that's a side thing. Yeah, it'll happen eventually. Right. So, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right, like in the 90s, it was, it was going to be either techno, rave music, or punk. Mm-hmm. Punk, beat it, beat it. And now... It came the underground. It went back underground, and it and it sort of re, redesigned itself. I'm talking about uh, techno or whatever you want to yeah. call it, EDM. Right, sure. redesigned itself, and now that became the wave. Right, so the underground, whatever that is right now, we we might not know. I'm probably too old to be like cool enough to know what the kids are doing in <laughs> their house, but there's some kid sitting out there with a guitar or a flute or a piano or a whatever that is doing something that's gonna be nothing like what we're used to right now and that will be the voice of that this next generation Mm -hmm. right the millennials got all the edm and all this stuff whoever the guy is it's going to be the uh the next guy right Mm -hmm. uh he'll come up with something that or he or she will come up with something that we haven't thought of before and that person should call me and i would love to work with them (laughs) (laughs) you and me both man (laughs) yeah exactly yeah. Well, going back to the 80s, that was a time when we started to introduce a lot more samples and all that stuff. And I think it yep. ties perfectly to a new venture that you're doing, ah, which is you've just recently right. launched a sample company. I so, did. so what made you decide to take on that venture? So I've, I've purchased countless sample libraries, and uh, I always ended up going back to stuff I made. Because I, I always felt they were too processed. Uh, I couldn't fit them in the mix. Um, I wish they just did this other one thing. I was always kind of like searching. So I always had this huge library of samples. And this last year or so, I've really gotten to the point where I'm like, man, I have this, this thing and I kind of want to help people and, you know, give it out there and, 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 uh, just create stuff for other people to create their thing. You know, like it's not about my sound. It's about your sound. It's about how you use them and you you can do it. I just want to provide tools for people to make great music so I can put on headphones and listen to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to enjoy the, the, the music. So yeah, I just, I have this been working on these samples. We're going to come out with four packs on March 1st. So it's one's called taco Tuesday. And uh, that is nine snares, three toms, and two kicks, and they sound great. Uh, that that'll be like a kind of like, hey, mixer, I can do a lot of stuff with this. I have a sound. It's called the City of Sound, but I had my studio at Sound City for three years, 
And I have a plethora, a cornucopia of samples <laughs> that I've made in that drum room with the board in. That's so You can awesome. go to Sound City now. Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate. Uh, you can go to Sound City now, but everything is different. The room, the room is different and the board is not there. So you can't get that sound. I'll tell you that right now. Yep. Uh, but so that'll come out and that's just one kit. Uh, so it's a kick, snare, two toms. Uh, and all the packs come with, uh, you know, direct close mics. And uh, I do overhead stereo rooms and mono rooms uh, that you can all mix and match. And then also I do a thing called the smack track, which is basically a bunch of parallel processing that I put on it. So you don't have to set up another chain, another auxiliary and put all this crap on it. Like you can just blend a taste. And every pack comes with waves, uh, dirt one shots and uh, uh, files. So you can load all that stuff in and just get up and going quickly. Uh, the other pack is called Transatlantic Hard Shots, which has like a, so when you tune toms, right, you, you, can, you can tune the top head higher than the low, and you get this pitch bend thing where it goes, boom. Mm -hmm. That's a little over-exaggerated, but so that was kind of the idea with this one is these two pitch bending toms uh, and then and six snares, so three at multi-velocity and then three that are just hard, hard, hard shots, um, and then a kick. And then the last one is called Pequod's uh, Kit. And that was recorded in Chicago. And Pequod's is the, my favorite piece in Chicago. So <laughs> I figured I'd name it that. And that's, again, two snares, a kick, and two toms. So we're doing that. And then I'm also making Mark's Moog. So I'm going to sample in, uh, and I've been working on the Moog. Uh, and that'll be free, actually, once it's done. And then I also... A uh, little, little side factoid about me is I am a, a film composer and a commercial and media composer. So I do a lot of that. I work with a guy named Robert Miller, who is, uh, if anybody knows who Aaron Copeland is, he was a uh, an American symphonist and highly regarded. That was Robert's mentor. Hmm. So he's been sort of showing me the ropes and helping me along and, uh, with my film composition and, and musical knowledge and all that stuff. And uh, we are, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say this is hundred percent yet, but the idea is we are going to go to the Manhattan Center and do an orchestral uh, virtual instrument. And it'll be two things. It'll be your typical orchestral stuff, string, strings, you know, horns, woods, uh, percussion. And then uh, with Robert's vast knowledge of music, we're going to do patches with specific blends because I remember when I first started learning how to write symphonic works and orchestral works, I would always think, well, what do the violins play with the woodwinds or, you know, what are these blends? Like what, what does a clarinet blend well with? Mm -hmm. And I always have these questions and you learn over time, but this pack is going to supply sort of built in blends. So you can kind of hit one note on your keyboard and you're like, ah, I sound like a symphonist. I've orchestrated some pretty cool stuff. So that's in the works and a lot of other stuff. I, I, I don't know. I'm just like an idea guy. That's and I, awesome. And anybody out there, please email me, mark.mccluskey at smackdrumsamples.com with any ideas you wish you had. If you're sitting there and you're going, man, why doesn't this thing exist? Email me, please. And I will do my best to make it happen. That's awesome. I'm sure you're going to get a flood of emails. That's wicked. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of engineers really take pride in their ability to record certain instruments. Would you say that uh, recording drums are, are your forte or is there like an instrument that you're really proud of? I love, I love, I'm not going to say I'm good at anything because everything I hear that I do, I'm just like, gosh, it's <laughs> so bad. But I, I love recording drums. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of the hardest things to get right. And there's such a variety of sounds you can get out of a drum. And I, I just find it such a beautiful instrument as a whole. It, 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 you know, the character, you can take the same kit, same player, and move to three different rooms and you have three different drum sounds. I just love the idea and the variety and how much, especially in pop rock and, uh, you know, popular music in general, how much drums are the signature of a sound. You know, like mm -hmm. a drum sound will literally, literally put a stamp on a band or a recording or a record. And I just love the ability that they have to do that. Mm -hmm. 
for sure. So I don't know to answer your question. Is that my favorite? Is that my favorite? Maybe. I like guitars a lot too. They're a lot of fun. Yep. Um, orchestral recordings are great. Yeah. I like it. And when you're recording samples, like, I don't know if your library is just kind of an accumulation of all of the samples that you've done throughout your history of recording, or if you've designed samples specifically for this pack. But when you when you're recording these samples, do you have a specific end use in mind? Because I always feel that like when it comes to using presets on like an EQ or compressor, like it's kind of useless unless you know the intended purpose for it, right? Like just because just because it says vocals doesn't mean it's going to make your vocals sound amazing. Like maybe there's like a giant right. top end boost that is to compensate for the fact that it's a really dull sounding vocal, right? So Dark if you yeah, have yeah, a bright yeah. vocal and you throw this vocal track, this vocal preset on, it's not going to do anything, right? So yeah. when you're designing samples, are you thinking of that kind of stuff in mind or is is that just an afterthought? Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 that, it is. Uh, most of these packs, the first bits of pack are probably going to be great for pop. Uh, and when I say pop, I mean the pop rock uh, punk rock, metal guys will find some use out of them. Uh, it'll definitely be more in the um, that 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 side of it. Uh, they will fit into funk pretty well. Um, and to, to kind of go down deeper is in in process, right? Everything always takes time. Is yeah, the, we are going to have specific packs that are designed just for hip hop and just for pop. Uh, or at least in our minds, just for that. Hopefully people use them in a way that I never can think of. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, try to go down that rabbit hole. Like there's a, an idea I have, I want to call it big shots. And all it is is gigantic, like cavernous rooms. So everything is like really big. That would be great for ep epic composers, uh, people that are doing that super ambient stuff and you need those big snares and big kicks. Um, that, that that That's something in process. But yeah, I mean... The, the end user is always there. And, and again, these samples are likely, I want to say this, uh, put this in, in, into perspective, lightly processed. So you'll pull it up and you're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Nine times out of 10, you're always going to need a little bit of EQ just to fit it in your mix, right? Mm -hmm. And a compression if you want to do it. But these are lightly processed where you pull them up and you're like, those sound great, but they're not overly processed. The only ones that are overly processed are the smack track, which is designed to be. And then there's a one shot in there too, which is the blend of all the mics. And, and but th still, that's not even like overly cute or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So don't think of them as presets. Think of them as really great starting points. Like you track something really, really well. Yeah. I've always been a really big fan of your snare sounds. I've always thought that they sound really fat, but they also have like an amazing amount of attack so they can cut through the mix and sound, sound really full. Oh, thank you. What's, what's your secret for processing snares? If there is a secret, like, is it, I mean, yeah, like, uh, the big thing for me is, uh, <laughs> a little bit of lows, some mids and some highs. No, uh, <laughs> that's turn like everything up. Right? Yeah. Just turn it all up. No. Uh, you know, I, it's almost exactly what you said. Like if you close your eyes and picture what you just said is that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm adding low end. I'm at, you know, and it always, always depends on the snare, right? If it's mm -hmm. a high tune, high tune snare, you're going to get up to like 250 Hertz. If it's a beefy low end guy, you're going to get in 150 Hertz, maybe even down to hundred. If it's super low, mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the, uh, taco Tuesday pack, we did this one stare. It's a, uh, Ludwig Copperphonic eight by 14. Awesome. So it's this, yeah, it's like almost the size of a floor tom. And we literally did one where it's like the head is like, you could like hit it and you could just see all the wrinkles in it, but it's just got so much girth. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, it just depends. A little bit of like lows, I crank. And I, I, I'm not a subtle guy, right? I don't go in there and do like two, uh, you know, two dBs of something on drums at least. Um, mm -hmm. On vocals and guitars, you might screw stuff up. But uh, on drums, I'll just you know, if I need to hear more, I'll just keep going until I hear more. And then if that's not enough, I'll add another thing after. Uh, and then the big secret for snares is clipping, clip it, like get a soft clipper. Got to have some kind of soft clipping in, in digital because when, when I would record on tape where I had uh, an SSL, um, you drive it, right? Everybody hears Chris Lord Elgy talking about this stuff and what he means, because he's never really clear. <laughs> hmm. That's true. Yeah, it's totally true. What he's talking about is, uh, if think about it like this, you have your chain, you have Pro Tools, and out of Pro Tools, you go into a board, 
right? If you crank that output, the, the line amp of the board, you're pegging the needle and you'll get that little overload light on an SXL. That is clipping, knocking off the top of that transient and bringing the fatness higher, right? And it makes everything sound louder, but it's actually not. And that's the trick is uh, actually I have a tutorial that I just put out on Smack's uh, YouTube page that shows exactly what I do to snare drums. I use, awesome. the, yeah, I use the arouser and uh, I just turn up the soft clipper and I just get it to tap that red light. And as soon as it taps, you hear it like the, 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 the smack of the drum. <laughs> that was a shameless promotion right there. Uh, <laughs> By the way, his company is named Smack Drum Samples, if you haven't figured it out yet oh, yeah. <laughs> for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Uh, so when you hit it, right, it whops off the, 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 the point, the, the ticky part, and it kind of crushes that back into the body of the snare, but you still get that stick hitting the head and the rim of the drum in a, in a, in a nice way. It's just thicker and dense. And I, I find that for at least rock drums, hip hop too, actually, um, that's key is that that little bit of character in there is how you get those fat sounds. If you do it to kicks, right, there's no right or wrong. There's never a right or wrong. If you do it to a kick drum, you're going to get a distorted sound because there's so much sub frequency stuff, but that can be cool if you're looking for like a black keys kind of thing or like, like an obviously like, Oh, this thing is distorted. Uh, on toms, you can get away with it a little bit better, but snare and overheads too. overheads, clip those overheads, like, right. Like sometimes instead of using a compressor on overheads, just keep, get your soft clipper, put it on there and clip that snare lower and lower and lower, right. Where you can turn the overheads up, but they're not super compressed. So they still like punch. They don't just go shh the whole time. And it's clipping that snare drum off and it just gives it this nice, fat, beautiful tone. That's awesome. I, I love that. That's great. Great, great tips there. Thank when you. you're recording drums, like what elements have an impact on things like mic selection, placement, preamps, all that kind of stuff? Like, are you, do you just have a go-to chain that you love to use all the time? Or is it something that you're really conscious of ahead of time? Uh, I think about it in, uh, in obviously it's, it's serves a song, right? Like, what are we trying to create? Are we trying to make people feel like they need to take a shower when they got done listening to the song? Are we trying to make people feel like, oh, that was nice and polite. Yay, nice day. I'm going to go get it like a tea, <laughs> right? So you have to think about what, what the, your, in your words, what the end game is, right? So what do we want people to do? And then that will influence how uh, I choose the signal path. I love, I've got a bunch of Telefunken mics. And I just love the Telefunken stuff because it makes me look like a genius because I could just put all that stuff on there and then walk in the control room and not even touch a knob. And everybody's like, man, those drums sound really great. I'm like, yeah, that's because I did all of it when I did absolutely none of it. Um, you know, look, another another thing, uh, uh, Brett Gerwitz of uh, Epitaph Records was my manager for about a year and a half. And I learned invaluable lessons from him. And the biggest thing that he told me that Jerry Finn kept swearing by is uh, don't buy gear, buy instruments and microphones because they do 99% of the work. So hmm. if you can get, you know, well, obviously the player matters the most, right? But if you have a, uh, uh, a Ludwig classic maple kit tuned right with some minor symbols that you like the tone of and you just throw up some telefunken mics on it <laughs> do you see where i'm going and yeah. like a royer and then you just hit the drums and listen to the control room guess what your job is done you know mm -hmm. maybe some mic placement move things around but 99 percent of your work is done because eq you got to remember eq is designed for what equalizing so if you can get as little problems from the beginning you don't need the eq you might want the compressor for a character thing, right? But you don't need the EQ. And and I'm telling you, like, if you, like, again, I'm not trying to promote it, but if you go look at the Smack Drum Sample uh, YouTube page and watch the tutorial I did, you'll see it's, like, very little stuff, except for maybe the, the snare, I think, has pretty exaggerated EQ curve. But other than that, it's, like, so subtle. And I even do a bypass at the end because when I'm going down it, I'm like, Look, that doesn't sound any different, right? But it does sound different because we did this stuff. It's it's the sum of the parts. The equation is one plus one equals two. 
So you got to have multiple things, right? And you bypass and you're like, oh my God, that's where we started. And then this is where we are. It's like night and day. So, you know, the, the microphones and the instrument, and then obviously, obviously the player. But if you can get those things right in a row, I, I'll, honest to God, it's like equalizing is literally made for what it is. You're not creating the sound. You're just fixing things to play nicely together. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And I love that approach because I think there's a lot of people who think the opposite and they, they don't commit to sounds up front. They don't EQ going in. Mm-hmm. They, they, it's like a fix it in the mix mentality. And, and at that point, it's all it's almost too late. You know, it is. It is. You can't. I mean, you can't polish your dirt. Right. Exactly. But in the words of Gene Simmons, you can you can spray paint it gold. But it's yeah, still dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's called uh, mastery. Yeah. <laughs> mix, that's right. yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, sit, sit around buy a nice guitar like and another philosophy i always had uh was take you know whatever you want like the thing you want or the thing you can get just wait and get the thing you want because you'll have that forever if you get the thing you want or you can get now you're going to sell it for half of less than half of what you paid and you're buying things twice and buying it over and over and over again so just like you want the the ar-51 telefunken mics the ones that i like you know, for overheads, save the whatever, 4,000 bucks or whatever it is. And then you got them and you'll never want to sell them. You'll just have them. You don't have to buy stuff again. You know, whatever it is. And I am not endorsed by Telefunken. Let me just say that. I just <laughs> love their stuff. Yeah, they make great mics for sure. Yeah, they make great stuff. Yeah. Manly too. Yeah, of course. I remember watching a video online of you a while ago and you were, you were talking about how you mix drums. And one thing that really caught my attention was you had a, a bit of a different approach for overheads and room tracks than I see a lot of other people do. I feel like a lot of people just use high pass filters and they roll off all the low end yeah. and make it all about the symbols. Whereas you are more about boosting the low end and stuff that people would normally cut. And, and I believe it was to enhance the body of the snare and kick and all that stuff. I yeah. was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on your approach to those things. So yeah, for sure. So uh, everything always is case dependent, right? So yeah, that right. song, if it's the video I think you're referring to, I was mixing a Motion City soundtrack song. I can't remember if it was Motion City soundtrack. I, tune. I think it was. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, yeah. We'll we'll just say sure, that. Let's that's go with that. Yeah. Because that's yeah. Let's go with that. So uh, the uh, okay. So that record was they were always told how amazing they were live, and they never really made like a live-ish record. Um, so they recorded all that live and one of the instructions was make it sound like we do live <laughs> so <laughs> i overheads right that's the picture mm-hmm. rooms and overheads so i got to make that picture sound good because the close mics it's not a live thing nobody listens to a snare drum three inches away from their ear mm-hmm. right they hear they hear the picture of it so for that particular thing i got the kick drum and the snare beef out of the overheads and rooms is pretty common for me to boost a lot of low end because uh, I even think I said it in that video is people listen think about think about a kick drum. If you hear the inside mic, does that sound does that sound like a kick drum? No, right? It sounds mm-hmm. like the inside of a kick drum. When you think about a kick drum, because of what we've learned our whole life, which is a kick drum exists in uh, a room, you hear the reverberation off the walls. So. We can use reverb to do that, right? But reverb with kick drums and low end gets a little weird. Mm -hmm. But if we use the room mics, which is the natural reverb, and crank the bass in that, you get this nice thud, ambient, an ambient thud. That's a thing. That's that's how I hear it. It's like this wash of uh, low end energy, but this beautiful ambience that really fills the space and kind of ties everybody together. Um, so yeah, you know, I always case dependent, like don't get me wrong, like I'll cut and just use cymbals on overheads. If it's like super fast music, something like that, where all that low end is just gonna like muddy up because it's like can't, you know, the waves are too big and he's already hit the kick drum a second time by the, that, by the time that thing is like evolved into what it's mm-hmm. supposed to be. So, you know, it's all case dependent, hot, you know, the speed of the song, everything like that, but uh, yeah. Typically, on something like that Motion City soundtrack thing, yeah, I'll boost a lot of lows in the overheads and try to design the overheads to sound like the picture that I want the drums to sound like and then use the close mics for extra reinforcement. 
That's great. Yeah, I've always really admired the sound of those Motion City soundtrack drums and and even like the Ludo drums that you did and all that oh, stuff. Wow, like yeah. they, they all sound so yeah. fat and huge. So I've always been curious about that's, that's know, Sound City right there. That Sound City. That's, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, Ludo's all Sound City. Yeah, that's Wallace awesome. and I. Yeah, Wallace did the first one. That's this is actually a, a, an aside, but a great story. The Wallace. So I was working with Ludo doing their demos, which helped them get signed to Island and Island. Uh, asked them to make a list of producers that they wanted to work with. And uh, I believe my name was on the list. And they were basically like, no, like he doesn't have a a big enough track record to, you know, give them all, give him all this money to make this record. So they picked Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace went back to Ireland and the songs that I already did, he was like, I'm not going to redo these. This is stupid. These are great. So then... (laughs) Uh, that's how I got my first major label major label credit because of Matt Wallace. And then we met, and then that's when he was like, "Dude, you should move to LA." I moved to LA, and then got my spot at Sound City next to his studio. And he, I mean, he's like one of the best dudes I've ever met in my life. Like, holy cow, snuggle time with that guy. Woo, that is good stuff. <laughs> Matt Wallace is amazing, man. He's a great, great, great man. He's a very good man. Yeah, that's awesome. I've I've always heard amazing things about Matt. He sounds, seems like a great guy. Dude, I'll get him on the show. I'll, 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 I would love I'll that. Yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic absolutely. if you can hook that up for sure. Actually, Matt, um, I was in a band for a little while. Um, actually, I was tour managing them and, and doing some live sound for a while. And then tour ended and they decided to go and record a record with Matt. And then I joined the band after they had just finished making oh, that record. Yeah. So I never got to meet him. But man, like you see all the stories I heard. He seems like such a cool dude. Yeah, like right when you walk into his studio... Uh, he has a, a sign above his door that says turning platinum into gold. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So moving a little bit away from talking about drums um, and just maybe moving a little bit more towards just mixing in general, what's your mindset when you go into a mix? Is there a certain process that you follow generally or like where do you start? So I, I will get the stems. I will, uh, open a Pro Tools session. I will not listen to anything, like not a rough mix, not to, not nothing. I'll put all the the uh, stems or tracks or whatever you want to call it in my template where my kick, you know, I have mm-hmm. like a thing, whatever. And, uh, and then I just hit play. <laughs> and then I just do whatever I think of whatever I'm feeling. And then hopefully by the end of it, it's good. That's really the process. And then I'll reference the rough mix when I'm like 90% done just to see if I was way off target or if I beat it or if I'm missing something that they really wanted to have happen. So I just go with my gut. And in those cases where you are far off from the rough mix, how do you approach that afterwards? Is it just still like you just feel positive with your, your vibe that you got for the mix or are you trying to, are you going to go back and kind of rework it? So I will, uh, well, it depends if I'm song three, uh, in a record, I'll just send it. If it's song one where we don't have that trust built yet, I will send it with a, hey, this was kind of my gut. Tell me if this is cool or not. And then I'll, I'll refine from there. Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, what makes a great mix? Uh, something that impacts you in a way, I guess. Because it's not about the sound, right? Who cares about that? Mm-hmm. As long as it moves you, like uh, when the cordis hits, you get the like little tingles. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah. And how long does it normally take you to finish a mix? I don't know, a couple hours. Yeah. I don't spend a long time. I just don't. Like, there's no reason to because uh, it doesn't matter how it sounds. It matters how it feels. And mm-hmm. once it feels good, I'm done. I'll just hit print. And then if, like, the vocal's too loud, I'll, I'll find out because they'll send me an email that says the vocal's too loud. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Makes total sense, right? It sounds like you're you're very much about the feel and and what sounds good to your ears is good. Yeah. So just work quick and, and commit to it, right? Yeah. Look, if, if you are no longer, if you're starting to think about a mix, right, uh, an emotional reaction, you don't go, now that guy hit me in the face. Should I be angry? Oh, yes, I should be angry. Okay, <laughs> engaged anger. Do you see what I mean? Right? You have an, an initial reaction, and that's what music is made for, is to play with our emotions. So if you're sitting there trying to design all this stuff, right, because the hi-hat isn't exactly the way you want it to sound, 
Like <laughs> nobody cares yeah. as long as they have the reaction. So get the reaction and then you can fix the other stuff if somebody else has an issue with it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. I, I, I love that. Great analogies. Thank you. You've obviously been doing this for a while. At what point did you feel like you started to make good mixes? Not, I'm sure everybody says the same thing. Not, I'm still not making good mixes. Yeah. I only hear stuff I wish was better. I agree with you. I, I feel that that's a really big thing where you're always being critical of your own work because it just forces you to to progress and learn new techniques and move forward. Mm-hmm. So, um, and learn new, new, new te- like new styles of EQ, new effects, whatever. Right. Yep. Is there anything that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're a little crazy for doing? Nothing. I mean, really, it's like nothing too crazy. It's just because it's so on the fly. There's mm-hmm. not like a like a snare. There's like a a chain, right? Like I put SSL EQs on everything just because that's what I'm used to. Uh, and then really it's not like a crazy chain. It's it's more like uh, if I'm mixing something and I, I'm like, yeah, this is not really exciting. Okay, well then maybe I'll distort the drums. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Maybe the bass needs to be fucking weird. I don't know. Like, I, you know what I mean? I literally just play around until I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. All right. Yeah. So if I'm engaged, hopefully other people will be too. And I'll just kind of go down that path. But as far as like, this is what I do is, is, I don't know. Yeah. I EQ stuff. I compress stuff if it needs it. And I fuck it up if it needs to be fucked up. Yeah. Well, I get, yeah and it goes just back to what you were saying about just, you know, when you, when you start overthinking what you need to do next, then that's usually the point yeah. where you should just stop. Yeah. 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 Use your gut. Like use, like be a human, like, be human. Don't be a calculator. Yeah. Like allow yourself to be involved in the emotional content of the music. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to mixing things like the low end, I know that that's something a lot of people struggle with. And, you know, they'll frequently find themselves having to go out to their car and listen to things out there. And, and, and low end is always an issue mm-hmm. for people. Do you have any approaches for or any tips for getting that right? Uh, get a good mastering guy. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> the... Uh, the uh, low end, you know, you got to be careful about boosting. If you don't have a great room or uh, speakers, you, you don't know what you're hearing. You know, you might have that like like those KRKs. They create such an illusion of what's what's down there and what's actually happening down there. It's so different because of like the ports and however they design them. So, I mean, I use Focal uh, SM9s. I went through tons of speakers. I used NS10s with the sub for a long time, and then I switched over to uh, the uh, ProMark 100s with a sub for a long time. And then I heard these SM9s, and I was like, you know what? The sub is in there. I don't have to worry if my sub is misbalanced. Like, these things are smarter than I am. So I'll just kind of put them in a room and get used to the way that sounds, and then I don't have to, like, mess with anything, and it's done. Yeah. So, uh it's all about the for the low end. It's like, don't be careful on boosts. You know, there's a lot of information down there. Oh, you know, a good trick. This is a good trick that I like to do is I will uh, turn up the bass where I think it should be. And then I turn it down and hit mute. I turn it down and hit mute. I heard it down, turn it down and hit mute. And then when the mute and the down don't make a big difference, I turn it up just a little bit from there. Interesting. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, that's great. The other, Oh, thank you. I don't know if it's good or, or bad, but <laughs> it's something that I do. <laughs> and then the kick and the bass to play together is, um, I, I try to listen for the low end of the kick. It, it, and, and again, this is if they're not playing well together, just out of the, out of the box, out of the gate. Um, I will just take a, a really, long roll off on the bass and just keep moving it up and keep moving it up and keep moving it up until that roundness of the kick drum pops through the bottom of the mix. And then I'll just leave it there because again, it doesn't matter how thin the bass sounds by itself because people aren't going to hear it that way. And guess what? If there's a part where it's just bass, then duplicate the track and take that EQ off mm-hmm. and then it pops back up when it comes back in. Yeah. But yeah. It's all about how everybody plays together. And, and, and again, I'm going to keep going back to that smack YouTube video is, uh, you see, I don't EQ in solo, none of it, zero, none. It's the whole thing is while all the drums are playing at once because 
it doesn't matter how they sound by themselves. It matters how they play together. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it's the sum of the parts, like you said. Yep. For sure. That's awesome. What's your approach with gain staging when you're mixing? Is there something like, do you always try to get your levels at a certain level or do you have a certain approach with that? Yeah. Yeah. So in my, uh, I have, have all my meters set to output. So, um, I try to, whenever I EQ something, I try to like turn down the volume if I'm boosting to match the, uh, level before EQ and after EQ and same with compressors, you know, you're always going to get a little, little different, but it's, I try to stay at least close. And then, uh, so I have all my meters going to output. So usually I get the kick and snare somewhere around negative six on the meters. And I have uh, a multi-bus thing. So I have a drum bus, a drum crush, a drum distort, a bass bus, a guitar bus, a keyboard bus, a lead vocal bus, a background vocal bus, and an effects bus. Uh, that's just like in, built into my template. And then, uh, Everything, there's no parallel stuff between the tracks and the buses. The buses will have parallels, like the obviously the drum crush bus and the drum bus will have two uh, faders that you can play with independently. Mm -hmm. But um, all the faders are always bussed to one of those buses. So then on those buses, uh, I have particular pieces of gear, or gear, plugins. And... Um, I think my drum bus has like a 2,500 on it at like a really low ratio, like 1.5 to one. And it's like, if it moves, it like literally like, <laughs> like a DB yeah. Two if it something crazy happens. Uh, and then I have a, a massive passive on that as well. If the drums need more air or bottom or whatever. And then, uh, uh, I just try to get everything to hit, uh, that, that I guess the drums are kind of like the bass, right? So I think I have that set at a right around negative six going into the master bus. And I just kind of build everything around that. And I like to have those faders as uh, they're almost like VCAs on an SSL. So I can kind of mix the song more guitars is one fader. It's not like five or yeah. six or whatever it is over here. Right. So yeah. And I just kind of stage it that way and, try to buy when I bypass things, everything's the same level just without the effects. And, and really that's, that's about it. That's very cool. Yeah. I mix it a very similar way too. Like I, I have almost a, a similar setting where I have a bus for every instrument group and it all goes to the master from there. So yeah, I love that approach. There's a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are relatively new in their careers and just getting started. What advice do you have for someone who's just getting started off with mixing? Try everything you can think of and don't watch tutorials. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, honestly, like don't, don't do it for like, that's don't watch it and go, that's how you're supposed to do it. Go and, and watch it and be like, Oh, okay. So he's doing this because if that makes sense, like yeah, it's, no, for it's sure. not, yeah, he's I, doing, you've got to find the why. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that there's too many people who watch these videos online and think, okay, well, those are the settings. So if I just yeah. rip those settings, then it's supposed to make my stuff we're sound done. good. But it's, it, yeah. it's like going back to that thing where we were talking about with presets, and it's like, it's not going to always work. Yeah. You need to understand the reason behind those moves. Like, where did we start? Where did we end? And like, figure out why those controls in, in between do what they do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not about what it looks like or, or anything. It's about why did I, why did I make that decision? That decision was made because whatever that is. Yeah, for sure. Right. People can't see my hand motions. I'm such an animated guy. <laughs> and I, there's like silence in a podcast and I'm like moving my hands. <laughs> That's great. I yeah. His it. hands are moving around all over the place right now for the people who can't it's see crazy. it. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. yeah are, like, you, are you Italian? That's like an Italian thing. I like, I, I, oh, I know. Right. <laughs> Right. I'm no, Italian, I'm, so I'm, I do it all the time. I, yeah, I'm Polish and live in New York, so I think you have to <laughs> talk to your hands in New York. Yeah. And another question I was going to ask for for the new people is, what advice would you give for people who are just trying to get clients? Like, how how would you recommend that they go about getting new clients? Yes. Yeah, so, man, I, I was so lucky. I hate to say that. Like, everything was so organic. I wasn't like out there with cards or anything. Uh, what I would do is um, find anybody that will let you record them and say, I'll do it for free, honestly. And, and <laughs> you can record them, right? But you have to have value. 
anybody can record anything these days well. My, for me personally, my value was I had a knack for fixing problems for bands. They would come and they would have these crazy structures that made no sense to uh, the regular listener, right? Because we learn what music is supposed to be because we've existed with what people call good music and that good music has a form. And I understand that people are like, I wanna break the form. That's great, I think you should, but don't expect to be popular because people are acclimated to a certain type of form, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I had the ability to recognize, you know what, that's not a bridge, that's a chorus. We're gonna do that three or four times in the song. This is a verse, this part should not be in the song. And this chord is going to be better than this chord because your melody does this and these should work together. So mm -hmm. that that's the value that I had with bands is I could see what they couldn't. So you, you can record people, right? But you have to have whatever your thing is. You have to be able to be unique enough that, oh yeah, we recorded with Joe. And it sounds great, but we can record with Steve which also sounds great. We recorded with Joe last time. Let's use Steve this time because there's no, there's no uniqueness or added mm -hmm. value to Joe. Fair you know enough, what yeah. I mean? So, yeah, yeah you, you have to find what what your strength is and recognize that, and then throw it in people's faces. Yeah, like people love working with me or they hate it. I can mm -hmm. tell you that right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to have a mentor who he always said, "You need to know the rules first before you can break them." And, right. and I love that because it's, it's so true. Sure. Like you need to understand how to do things properly in order to understand, okay, well, I can bend the rules this way to make my own yeah. unique sound. Yeah, it's funny. I, the thing I always find is I, I hear bands and I go, oh, I know what you're trying to do, but it's this. And that's the thing is like they have the sense of what they want to make. But just like you said, I know enough about music and enough about the theory is I can see what they're trying to do and go, oh, you need to fix this and this and this, and then that's what you're trying to do, and that works. And then they are, you know, nine times out of 10, they're like, yeah, oh, shit, I see. Mm -hmm. They don't know what happened, but they see that that's what they were trying to hear. For sure. Well, I know you had a crazy morning already, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I'm sure you're, the rest of your day is just as crazy. So maybe we should start to wrap up. But how can people follow you online? What's the best way for them to do that? So they can follow me at Mark McCluskey, uh, Facebook, right? Facebook, Mark McCluskey. Uh, uh, Instagram, same thing, Mark McCluskey. Twitter, I think is Mark McCluskey. I think it's all like that. And then Smack Drums is uh, Smack Drums. Uh, excuse me. Let me start that one over. SmackDrumSamples.com. And then uh, same with Facebook. Facebook, Smack Drums, Samples. Uh, Twitter is Smack Drums. Uh, and Instagram is Smack Drums Samples. Cool. And uh, I would love to uh, curate a special pack for your listeners, give them like a kick and a snare or something like that, and they can just have it and you can send it out if they want it. That would be amazing. I'm sure they'd love that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. uh, after when we're done, we'll, we'll figure out how to make that happen. That'd be amazing for sure. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And um, lastly, any cool projects that you're currently working on that you can talk about? Uh, so I am mixing Punchline's new record. I'm mixing i mix my friend nate he does this like uh like edm kind of house project thing i mix a song for him uh uh the film composer i work with we just did a uh coca-cola spot that will be in the olympics wow um and that and that'll be uh like a bunch of spray painted uh uh graffiti guys that come to life and they steal like a coke off of a banner Very um cool. that's really cool yeah, it's an arrangement of uh, uh, the Mountain King, you know. Yeah, so it's an arrangement of that specifically scored for that those commercials. But uh, that's cool. That's fun. Uh, I'm on the uh, so <laughs> we got nominated for an Oscar for no a film film called Knife Skills that we uh, worked on this year. Congrats! That's huge. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. And then I think we have an Emmy submission for ESPN 30 for 30 Celtics versus Lakers film that we scored as well. Very cool. So a lot of stuff, 
lot of fun stuff. Sounds like you're a busy guy. And, and drum samples and mixing and producing. And I need like like eight hours of sleep right now. <laughs> or just lots of coffee. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Then you just poop. <laughs> Fair yeah, enough. Then you, yeah, you're right. Then you spend yeah. all your time there, right? <laughs> yeah, you poop all day. It's wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. This was oh, so no, enlightening, you. man. I, I think I learned a ton from this. So, and I'm sure the I listeners will, will learn a lot too. So thanks so much, man. So that was my conversation with Mark McCluskey. I had so much fun chatting with him. I love his work and uh, I loved getting the chance to talk to him. And I think he's a great teacher as well. The way he describes things is very clear and concise. And I think that there was a lot of great stuff in there that we can all learn from. As I'm sure you heard in the conversation, the guy clearly knows what he's talking about when it comes to processing drums. And so because of that, I want to remind you to check out his company, Smack Drum Samples. That's smackdrumsamples.com. And as of this week, on March 1st, he's going to be unveiling his new sample packs for the public and making them available. And I would highly recommend you check them out. But in the meantime, Mark is offering an exclusive sample pack that is free to Master Your Mix subscribers only. So... I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com forward slash Smack Drum Samples. And all you got to do is enter your information on there and you will get a free download of his new sample pack that he's made exclusively for Master Your Mix subscribers. So definitely make sure to check that out. And if you're looking for another free download that you can get, if you haven't already, visit MasterYourMix.com and on the page I'm giving away a free copy of my Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide to using EQ and compression on a variety of different instruments within your mix. It shows you all of the frequencies that you got to pay attention to as you're mixing, what to boost, what to cut, what you're going to hear in those frequency ranges, also what kind of settings to use with compression to get the maximum impact out of your tracks. So definitely make sure to check that out at MasterYourMix.com. And lastly, if you like what you hear in this podcast and you're listening to it on iTunes, make sure to leave a rating and a review of this podcast. It helps us get exposed to bigger audiences and helps build up the credibility of the podcast. So I would really appreciate if you could do that. And that's pretty much it for today. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you have an awesome day. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.